the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Paul, pray for us. St. Thomas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Moses' law would lead to salvation and holiness. 
St. Paul was only offering a part of the truth, which is gospel. That's what they said about St. Paul, not what St. Paul was actually saying, of course. They even didn't stop their critics to his preaching, but also about his origin, telling that he wasn't a real apostle, as never followed Jesus with the twelve others. Therefore, he was to be considered as an imposter, a late convert, who could only bring a fake gospel, not the real word preached by the Lord. Facing them again, St. Paul answers with the letter to the Galatians, which can be read as a moved and warm call to the real faith, demonstrating the falsehoodness of such doctrine, which was denying the redemption and the salvation through the sacrifice of the cross. As he did in the second epistle to the Corinthians, which, is, which we studied last time, St. Paul is justifying himself again, showing his faith and burning love to the Redeemer. This faith is in the mystery of the cross is valuable for the redemption, the salvation. As per, as per consequence, it cannot be linked or subordinated to the particular the particular law of these who were once the chosen people, know now that the grace of the redemption has been released after the second epistle to Corinthians. The authenticity is not to be questioned in any ways, and the recent modern critics on that matter cannot be taken for serious. Facing, facing those who were denying his apostolic authority, St. Paul intends to demonstrate that his preaching is nothing else but the gospel of Christ. At the very difference of other epistles we've previously been through, there is no initial thanksgiving, and the letter seemed to start as a reproach letter. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's the, that's the initial greeting, and no thanksgiving for any graces like we've seen in Corinthians and Thessalonians last time. And immediately now, start the reproach. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. That's quite strong words, isn't it? Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we, are, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one, one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We can divide the epistle into the following three parts. <clears throat> From chapter 1 and 2, the gospel being revealed to St. Paul, 
but would offer peace to the internal conflicts of hurting the Galatians, the Galatians in themselves. Chapter 3 and 4, the true sons of Abraham are recognized either believe and live with justification through faith, Christian freedom, and life in the Spirit. And finally, chapter 5 and 6, and the conclusion. The Christian life is guided by the Holy Ghost. And the conclusion of the end of chapter 6, which should summarize all the teaching of the letter. If we would like to summarize the content of the epistle, St. Paul offered us this following verse, which says it all. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Holy Cross is and remains the center of the faith. The world was redeemed through it. The Holy Ghost is given to us through it. The creation is reborn with it. It removed us from the slavery of the sin and made us free with the baptism. That would be our first point about this epistle. The, first, the truth of the gospel is liberating us. Our title, if you remember, the gospel being the gospel of freedom. Our title said that the epistle to the Galatians was the gospel of freedom. The two aspects of gospel and freedom are completing each other. And the gospel received and preached by St. Paul offers us justification through the faith in Jesus, who died upon the cross, banishing any bounds of the sinful slavery, setting men free. We are justified through the faith. In a similar way, St. Paul will write to the Romans later. He explains here how Abraham deserved salvation because he believed. We may put into parallel chapter 3 from Galatians and chapter 4 from the Epistle to the Romans, we'll study a bit later. St. Paul explores clearly that law was given as a help, a necessity to correct and amend, but the promise to Abraham was first. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, the S is important, meaning many people, but to you and but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this the law introduced 403, 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise had referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, 
then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He continues his explanation in chapter 4 with this well-known reading we have for the fourth Sunday of Lent and may be hard to explain shortly, but gives, gives us another opportunity to discover the deepness of the meditation of the apostles upon these historical facts that became prophecies and were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, as we just read above. And here is the famous episode. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. No Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, bearing woman, who, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. The Reverend Abbot Don Paul de Lattes explained this excerpt in no better way I could do myself. In his commentary upon the epistles of St. Paul, which was unfortunately never translated into English. However, with the good help of Ken Weaver, it seems to me it was worth trying. And here is the explanation of the long explanation, and you will forget this long quotation of Don Delatz, which is extremely interesting for this excerpt of the episode of the Galatians. When this affectionate and ex general exaltation is over, the apostle returns to the group of defectors, those who, having escaped from the bondage of paganism, soon became bored with being free, and in love with the chains allowed the yoke of the law to be imposed on them. You must now, the, you must now be slow, he said to them. What does it teach you? In the law itself, those who read it well will find the proof of the invocation of the law. You have read Genesis. It says of Abraham that he had two sons, one born of the slave Hagar, the other of the free woman Sarah. The son of the slave was born of the flesh according to the common way. The other is the son of the promise. It was born miraculously from a barren mother and from a 100 years old father. These facts are historical. They are also allegorical 
and express realities that go beyond them. It is God's way of giving voice to, to events themselves. Hagar and Sarah are real people. They are at the same time, unknown to them, symbols of the two testaments. The abbreviated design of two forms of supernatural dispensation. The first testament is born at Sinai. She gives birth to servitude. This is Hagar. The name Hagar mean, means Mount Sinai in Arabic. This symbolically, symbolically, this symbolically, symbolically sorry, correspond to the present Jerusalem, a slave like her sons. We are in the middle of an allegory, but it is the allegory of Saint Paul and the Spirit of God. To explain that the person of Hagar symbolized the old law and the Jerusalem of the time, it is neither forbidden nor necessary to suppose that in the chain of Sinai there were a summit which bore the name of Hagar, or that the slave called Egyptian was born in a part of Arabia over, over which the domination of Egypt was exercised. It is sufficient to justify the symbolism that she is Abraham, Abraham's wife, that she is the slave, and that she gives birth to children who are slaves like her. The connection between Jerusalem and Mount Sinai is even more easily explained. Jerusalem was the religious capital of a testament that had originated at Sinai. It was there that God had made a covenant with his people. Sinai was God's dwelling place, and it was from there that the Theophanes set out to carry out the carry out works of justice in the world. There is, therefore, a Jerusalem of time and of earth. She was born in Arabia on Sinai. She, she is a slave and subject to a law. She gives birth to sons who are slaves like her. But there is another Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above, a heavenly Jerusalem, as the epistle to the Hebrews says, the new Jerusalem, as St. John says, there is one, the one is the free wife, the wife of God, the mother of Christians. Like Sarah, she was barren for a long time, but after centuries of barrenness, <clears throat> it is to her, the mother of Isaac and of perfect joy, that the prophet Isaiah addresses himself. Rejoice, barren women who did not bear children. Break forth into shouts of joy. Your wine who was barren yesterday. Today the favor of God has returned to you, and your sons are more, num are more numerous than the sons of your rival. And these sons without number, these sons born of the promise like Isaac, these sons free like their mother, there are you, my brothers. Why should you fall from your freedom and your greatness? <clears throat> the biblical allegory continues even further and draws in Ishmael and Isaac the present relationship between Mosaicism and Christianity, which is younger. As in the past, 
The son according to the flesh molested the son of the promise. So today in Mosaicism persecutes Christianity. But this effort has no future. The scripture has already determined the fate of both. Out with the slave and his son. It is not fitting that the son of the slave should be called to share the inheritance of Abraham with the son of the free wife. The conclusion of the apostle brings together the last verse of chapter 4 and the verse of chapter 5. My brothers, we are the sons not of the slave but of the free wife. Let us keep intact the liberty which Christ has given us, and let us not return to the yoke of the ancient servitude. We think it's useful to pause for a moment to consider this affirmation of Christian freedom, the scope of which many try to exaggerate. The divine provision has have established that Christianity, previously prepared, should one day be grafted unto Judaism and would thus benefit from its birth, from all the religious work which had preceded it. At the same time, Mosaicism defended it itself against the newcomer, disputing its rights and demanding that it either, either merge with it or be distinguished from it. Christianity could not merge with it, on pain of perishing in its cradle. It could only distinguish itself by emphasizing the profound difference which separated it from the Old Testament. Only this characteristic, essential difference could define its phytogenome. This difference, according to St. Paul, is freedom. But we must define in what this freedom consists. Even in its most general notion, freedom implies two elements. First of all, a liberation. Then an action of which this liberation is the condition and the means. One is not free in order to be free, but to act freely. And according to the profound doctrine of the school, which is the school of St. Thomas Aquinas, one is free to act according to the intelligence. Originally, we do not have freedom, but on the condition that we use freedom, the freedom that we do have, we lead our lives towards perfect freedom, toward the fullness of freedom. Laborious and resolute discipline removes us from that confused set of tendencies, habits, and disordered disposition which solicit our will and our action, and cause them to deviate from the light of intelligence, our will and our action are free, when they are no longer held in the check by the demons and importunities of the lower powers. To be free from lowly servitude, to the point of wanting and acting according to the intelligence, is freedom. Now, to be free from all inferior solicitation, to the point of wanting and acting according to the mind of God, is Christian freedom. It is therefore the case that freedom is simply docility to the Spirit of God, and we can see very clearly the world doctrine which led, which will lead to this admirable formula, 
with spiritual staying are going to ease and feeling. What makes us free as children of God is precisely our integrity to the thought, the will, and influence of God. We can conclude this part saying that the law is unable to offer justification since the redemption, since the sacrifice of the cross. However, the law offered it before. But since the cross, its role as tutor has entered. The Christian is now free and no longer a slave. Coming back to the law would mean reinstate slavery, but Jesus Christ freed us. As per simple custom, we have in this epistle to the Galatians one of his favorite antitheses, flesh and spirit. The same we will find in the epistle to the Romans. Flesh is battling with spirit and produces fruits against the virtues which flourish with the spirit. The Christian needs to mortify his flesh and walk under the motion of the spirit. The act of the flesh has obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction and envy, drunkenness, orgy and orgies and the like. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self. Receiving the gospel with baptism and faith, crucifying his flesh by a continuous union with Christ and his passion, the Christian is living through a new life, which requests a total fidelity to it. I live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its patience and desire. Today, Christians are not really attracted in the fulfillment of Moses' law. And we could think that this epistle hasn't a real interest for us. Except upon an historical point of view about rivalry between Christians and Jews at that time. Of course, as you guess, it is and remains actual for us. As for real, the teaching of the Apostles remains present and applicable to us, particularly against those who may be tempted or are rejecting the mystery and theology of the cross. This epistle truly deserved its nickname as the Gospel of Freedom, this freedom brought to mankind with the sacrifice of the cross. The one who chooses to follow Christ frees himself from the slavery of Satan, sin, world and flesh. 
The epistle to the Galatians warns us about the possible temptation of presumption, thinking that we could save us, save us alone without any help. St. Paul's letter invites us to a real, mature and free life with God. His freedom is to believe in charity. The epistle to the Galatians is not only the gospel of freedom, but also the epistle about Christian perfection, which leads to eternal life. We are all called to become saints. Since we've seen the epistle to Galatians, and we said at the beginning was the pattern, we need to go deeper into St. Paul's theology with the system of the um, Epistle to Galatians, the Epistle of the Romans, which also had a nickname, the Gospel of Justification. The letter to the Galatians was a decisive stroke of a mastermind. Never before had St. Paul spoken with such clearness, never so completely disowned the tenets of Mosaism. Henceforth, no more Sabbath. No more Jewish fasts and legal observances, no more circumcision, but freedom for all in Christ Jesus. All was honored with the law and its works of tutelage. Chanting one's fast, the tutor receives his dismissal. All that man looked for, it, for in vain from the old law, washing away from sins, redemption, and sanctification. All this he could find only in Jesus, and to obtain it, no formal practices, no legal acts are required of him. He must simply believe in him, be united with him, and abandon himself to that power, that power divine which works in us to will and to do. Such was the master such was the master thought, which was absorbing the apostle's mind even, even more and more completely. It was the special revelation which he has commissioned to make known to the worldwide world. He had begun to grasp its tremendous significance from the hour of his conversion. For Jesus, when pointing out to him the vast domain of heaven down, as the alerted field of his apostolate had added, through the faith which they shall have me, they shall receive remission of their sins and their share in the life everlasting. At the celestial revelation were granted to him in ever increasing numbers, and as Paul St. Paul's soul expanded to receive God's gift, in like manner did the foundation of Christian doctrine continued to appear to him in clearer, brighter light. It stood forth before his mind in noonday radiance at the time he wrote his epistle to the Galatians. In that faith which shapes and justifies us, he saw at last all that we are there we see the rain, not a mere essence of the reason, but faith animated by charity, the free gift of one's heart, and will and soul, ruling entirely to the Christ. The rain he was given to discern also God's operation in us, 
how he does and not confine himself merely to dissolving and forgetting or concealing the sin within us without destroying it, but that in this, as always, he acts as the Almighty Creator, renewing the soul of the believer, blotting out his sins, regenerating him, making him a sharer of his own spirit, his holiness, his righteousness. When St. Paul wrote to the Romans, he never visited Rome before, but faith was already living there. Let's never forget that the Roman legions went from Rome throughout the world and came back to the eternal city with, of course, trophies and everything, but also with Christian faith. As we just saw in the epistle to the Galatians, St. Paul studied and went deeper into the mystery of salvation with the triple preparation of the natural law promised to Abraham and the law given to Moses upon Mount Sinai. There were saints according to natural law, Nehemiah, Melchizedek, Abel. With Abraham, a new generation of saints was born and helped even more with the law. In the Epistle to the Romans, St. Paul presents a resume of the history of salvation, which unfortunately wasn't that successful, as there were only prophetic figures of the Redeemer who made everything perfect with himself. St. Paul demonstrated the obvious superiority of God's grace against the law, saying in the meantime that God didn't forget anyone and that salvation was offered to all. That this was the real novelty brought with Jesus, as Pope Benedict XVI said in his encyclical letter, Deus Caritasis. But up to now we have been speaking mainly of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the profound concentration of the two testaments as the one scripture of the Christian faith has already become evident. The real novelty of the New Testament lies not much in new ideas as in the figure of Christ himself, who gives flesh and blood to those concepts, an unprecedented realism. In the Old Testament, the novelty of the Bible did not consist merely in abstract notions, but in God's unpredictable and in some unprecedented activity. This divine activity now takes a dramatic form when, in Jesus Christ, it is God himself who goes in search of the stray sheep, a suffering and lost humanity. When Jesus speaks in his parables of the shepherds who goes after the lost sheep, of the woman who looks for the lost coin, of the father who goes to meet and embrace his prodigal son, there are no mere words. They constitute an explanation of his very being and activity. His death on the cross is the culmination of that turning of God against himself in which he gives himself in order to raise man up and save him. This is love in its most radical form. By contemplating the pierced side of Christ, we can understand the starting point of this encyclical letter, God is love. It is there that this truth 
cannot, can be complete. It is from there that our definition of love must begin. In this contemplation, the Christian discovers the path along with, with which his life and love must move. In this epistle to the Romans, after realizing and preaching the supremacy of the faith and the grace above the law, St. Paul will ask about the destiny of the people once chosen who are called to be part of the church because God's gifts are and, and his call are irrevocable. The denial hastened the conversion of the Gentiles but also prophetized their comeback. One day. As we've been saying since the beginning of, of this lesson, St. Paul fought many times against the Jews who wanted to impose the law to the newly converts. In Thessalonica, in Corinth, in, he preached about the grace and salvation by the faith. He wrote to the Galatians to remove this heresy condemned by the Council of Jerusalem. And as it seemed that the communities were at peace upon that question, he wanted to prevent issue, the same issue for the future, not only inside a local church, as it did until then, but in several churches. What was the best option but to write to the capital city of the world, the capital city of the empire, Rome? This encyclical letter, as we could say about it, would prepare the audience for a possible battle in the future against the same issues. St. Paul wrote one of his longest epistles, exposing the full Christian doctrine about the faith, justification, and in relation with the history of salvation. As we said previously, the epistle of the, to the Romans was a sort of extension of the letter to the Galatians in a more complete way. The letter was probably written around year 58, a year after Galatians. But St. Paul only came and visited the Eternal City only after year 60, when he arrived from Caesarea as a prisoner during the last trip, which concludes the story of the Acts of the Apostles. The authenticity of the letter was never seriously challenged, even if some recent critics said that the last chapters were possibly from another letter which was lost afterwards. But as we said last time, we must receive from the Holy Church the text as one unique letter. We can see a structure in four parts in the epistles. Justification and faith, chapter 1 to 4. The antithesis, life versus death, chapter 5 to 8, but also flesh versus spirit or law versus grace. It's always the same thing. The difficult question of Israel, chapter 11, uh, 9 to 11, and how Christians should behave and live within the world, chapter 12 to 14. From the beginning of the epistle, St. Paul depicts a terrible vision where both pagans and Jews were contained. But in opposition, he also presents the gift of the grace offered by Jesus, who, dis 
who desires to save them as he loves them, can take the words of the Apostle himself to make a summary of that doctrine. He was delivered over to death, death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. In the most famous chapter 5, center of this episode, St. Paul, Paul marks the terrible consequences of the original sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. To be sure, sin was the world what in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone who counts where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin in by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Following the teaching of the Apostle, the Church doesn't hesitate to sin during Easter Vigil, a truly needful sin of Adam, which was blotted out by the death, by the death of Christ. O oh, happy fault that merited to pass us such and so great a redeemer. Christ's death completely destructed sin. Until the last day, of course, Satan will always try to tempt men and drag them to hell. But Christ's victories remains total and definite. Aiden's faults placed everyone under the reign of death, sin and devil. Christ's obedience opened a new life in the kingdom of grace for all men of good will. And this is how we get justified with the virtue of faith. The justification by the faith is the main theme of, this whole, of the whole epistle. St. Paul already said many times and many things about it in the epistle to the Galatians and even before in the Corinthians. The justification of Bible faith, accompanied with the good works, was offered to mankind by Jesus, second Adam, following a decree of merciful grace. The original sin was repaired with the death and resurrection of Christ. The salvation is offered to anyone, pagans and Jews, under the condition of the virtue of faith. And of course, if you remember, not the fulfillment of the law. God is offering an efficient justification and not only a veil upon our sins, as Luther was saying. The newly baptized is fully reborn with Christ and is living from the life of the Hebrews. As we were restored in the friendship with God, we have now been surrounded through the virtue of hope to obtain the final reward while we live with the gift of charity. Peace, joy and hope are the main blessings received from that justification. Peace. The man is no longer opponent to God, but reconciled with him thanks to the Holy Blood. Peace gives grace. The Christian is not only at peace with God, but with the baptism 
it truly became his song. Joy. It comes along with peace. Hope is not, is not fictional, but real. We are saved with hope. Following the Beatitudes, tribulation and pains are part of our life and are the evidence of the truth of our redemption. We need them to be offered occasions to persevere and continuously hope about our salvation. But the contemplation of the Father in the Son, especially through the willful sacrifice by obedience and love, which is the evidence of the common love they share, is and must be the summit of Christian, of Christian joy. Hope is the third blessing, as the sinful past has now gone, and we've been given the promise of a glorious future. Real hope can't be wrong, as it founded upon the promise made by God, who sent the Holy Ghost to comfort us. And if we are living in peace, joy and hope, we are definitely invited to, became, to live a life of holiness. As the gift of Christ is widely offered to anyone, no matter where he is coming from, access to all in holiness is given to all, and not only saved for a restricted amount of people. Following baptism, this new life places you far away from your ancient sinful life, but also opened it to a holier one. And we sing for holiness is not only avoiding sins, but complete change of mind. As we've been united with the Trinity, being united with Trinity made you living and participating with divine intimacy. Therefore, there is a real requirement to avoid scandal and to attain a prayer life with the Holy Ghost. And here is St. Paul's words themselves. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not, it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit you put to death the misdeed of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. And if we spoke about justification, we obviously need to speak about a very sensible subject topic of the Christian faith which is predestination and was so misunderstood um, especially since the uh, 16th and 17th century. Predestination is one of the most important doctrinal points of this episode. It was often misunderstood during the last centuries especially by Protestants and Jesuits. To make it 
simple and short. Everyone will receive the sufficient graces for his personal salvation. Of course, mankind is guilty in front of God, but grace is freely given to men as a gift, not as something being due. But would it mean that grace may be refused to someone? No. St. Paul is neither a Protestant nor a Jansenist. God's choice are upon temporal realities, which are privileges that may be given to some and not to others. But this never touches the universal call to holiness, which this one is offered to anyone individually. This mystery, because it's really a mystery we can't really explain more than Saint Paul himself did, is linking is to be linked with the mystery of Israel. And Saint Paul does admirably about that, because he removes God from the equation at the very beginning. All along the story of Israel, God remained faithful and fair to them. The promises that were made to Israel were fulfilled. And here again, St. Paul exposed the filiation of Isaac, we studied earlier with the Epistle to the Galatians. We need to remember one important thing. God chose Israel, but didn't give to them the possibility to decide who will benefit of the fulfillment of the promise at the end. Because God is and remains the sovereign master. We can fell from anywhere, even from the steps of the throne of God, like Satan, even from the company of the Lord, like Judas. We are only secure if we remain vigilant in humility respect. God never failed Israel. He is full of mercy and this is why he offered salvation to anyone he wishes. But he left them free to refuse it. Instead of thinking and saying God changed his mind about the chosen people, we would better say that human freedom unfortunately rejected salvation which was at hand. And in a similar way, God did with Parion against Moses, so did it with these who didn't, want, who didn't want him. And at the light, not to have God in their knowledge, God delivered them up to a reprobate sense, to do the things which are not convenient. But according to thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou treasures up to thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and the revelation of the judgment of God. If you reject God, you punish yourself in a more clear way, if I may say. I mean, dare to sound clearer than St. Paul. St. <laughs> Paul shows us the real issues with Israel, who was privileged with so many blessings and special care from God. In chapter 11, he explains with the figure of the olive tree how Israel received, but for the fulfillment of the promise, another, another branch 
was attached to the tree. If the olive tree was so unfaithful to the original grace, what a fruit from the branch which was attached to come. However, the gift of God are, are without repentance, as we said. Therefore, we ought, to, we ought to hope and pray that they will come back as Israel remains beloved in God's heart because of, because of the faith of their fathers. O oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, our incomprehensible are his judgment and our unsearchable his ways. We've seen the justification with the faith, predestination, we've seen the mystery of Israel, but when we see the mystery of Israel, this obvious link to the new Israel, are they the new Adam? And the new Israel is, of course, the Holy Church. The Holy Church, which is the son of the promise. And what we just said about Israel applies to the church. She is the her, the son of God in spirit, that we may oppose to Israel, the son of the flesh. The faith of the church will respond to the incredulity of Israel, but the church will be perfectly completed with the coming back of Israel. The church is composed with the elected of God, those he called within his eschatological aspect. The head is the new Adam, and her members are the baptized people who lead, who leaves. And her member are the baptized people who believe according to the Spirit and does good work, being united in the same mystical body. The two epistles to the Galatians and Romans exposed forever the doctrine about justification and faith. Although they are written in a polemical style, St. Paul developed his theology about the redemption and the universal call to salvation and holiness. Against Luther, who misunderstood St. Paul, we need to affirm with the Apostle the requirement of faith and charity being practiced with good work to merit the supreme reward. Faith without charity is the great nonsense of the Protestant heresy as charity will remain forever in heaven. There is no opposition between faith, justice, and love and mercy. On the contrary, faith and justice are the greatest evidence of the merciful love of God for his children. I didn't find justice is based on love, flows from it and tends towards it. In the passion of death and death of Christ, and the fact that the Father did not spare his own son, but for our sake made him sin, absolute justice is expressed. For Christ undergoes the passion and cross because of the sin of humanity. This constitutes even a superabundance of justice. For the sins of man are compensated for by the sacrifice of the man God. Nevertheless, this justice is properly justice to God's measure, springs completely from love, from the love of the Father and the Son and, the, and of the Son, 
and completely bears fruits in love. Precisely for this reason, the divine justice revealed in the cross of in the cross of Christ. Sorry. Precisely for this reason, the divine justice revealed in the cross of Christ is to God's measure, because it springs from love and is accomplished in love, producing fruits of salvation. The divine dimension of redemption is put into effect not only by bringing justice to bear upon sin, but also by restoring to love that creative power in man, thanks also which is which which he wants more and access to the fullness of life and holiness that come from God. In this, in this way, redemption involves the revelation of mercy in its fullness. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.